Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times and this is View From My Sofa, the podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is the king of the TV conspiracy thriller, Jed Mercurio, the brains behind Line of Duty, Bodyguard, and most recently, Bloodlands, starring James Nesbitt. In this episode, Jed tells me about the TV he watched as a young boy growing up in a working class family in 1970s Staffordshire, why he felt more comfortable flying a plane for the RAF than writing his first script, and how his years as a junior doctor gave him his big TV break. Jed, hello and welcome to View From My Sofa. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on the show. Quite all right. Now, what I want to ask first and foremost is what is the view from your sofa? That would be pointed towards the television like in a lot of houses. Uh, I've always grown up in houses where the prime seating was always facing the TV. And in fact, you kind of wonder what people did before TV. How did they kind of point their furniture? What do you spend your time watching? I tend to watch a lot of sport um, and watch that live. And then I guess maybe sort of late evening, I'll, I'll maybe watch some comedy, stream some comedy with my kids. Um, but generally, yeah, I'm afraid I'm a live sport watcher. What surprises me there is that I thought you'd maybe say crime drama. I do watch crime drama and I watch it because it's kind of my field and so... I do keep up with everything and I'll watch the first episode and and hopefully more of pretty much everything that comes on. But in terms of what my go-to viewing is, the thing that I make an appointment to view and I get the most feedback from and the most pleasure from, it's, it's shared viewing of sport. Who controls the remote in your house? That would be whoever gets to the tv first so then if there are there are divergent tastes we we have to negotiate um but i think like a lot of households we kind of struggle to find something that we can all watch together so i think most people now kind of have quite atomized viewing so a couple of us might watch sport together a couple of us might kind of like be in the same room but not actually even watching the same device um and then people also go and find another tv and watch something on their own yeah which is crazy because i remember growing up we'd all sit sunday 9 p.m whatever big drama was on we'd all be sat there as a family watching whereas now you're right i walk in to my family home and my sister might be watching something on her laptop and my parents are watching and my mum might be also scrolling through her iPad. And now we have such a range of platforms on which to watch. Do you have that in your family too? Everyone's kind of watching everything separately, but sometimes at least in the same space. 
yeah, that's exactly our experience too. And and I think it's just become the way it is now. I think maybe there are certain times of year where the women's Euros or holiday periods or whatever, when people gather around the TV and, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that now with the um, the news of the, the, the death of Her Majesty the Queen and the, the succession. So it, in that sense, there are always times when people will return to collective viewing. But I think the trend has been away from that for such a long time now. What did your sofa look like whilst growing up and was telly something that was a family affair? Yeah, so um, I was actually born in Lancashire and then we moved to Staffordshire when I was about, I think, about six years old. So my first memories of watching TV were in the Lancashire home. Um, and then um, there, as as when we moved to Cannock in Staffordshire, it was kind of the same thing, which was the TV in the corner of the room and the, the, the three channels and generally collective viewing because people watched live. There was no other way of watching back then. So um, we watched TV as a family, um, and that kind of continued until... Um, sort of teenage years when uh we got a, a little portable tv which I, I think was black and white it was so old and second hand um just so that there wasn't a fight over the remote and what was your first tv memory i think that it must be the splashdown of apollo 17 um which was 1972 i that that's something that i recall very definitely, and and I can put a date on it. I also remember watching Beverly Hillbillies when I was a little kid, but I'm not sure when that would have been. And and then my next other memories that I can date relate to, to football, um, which are later, the sort of 1974. So it must be that Apollo 17 thing in 1972. And I read that when you were younger, you had this dream to become an astronaut and do you think those two things are linked i don't know i think that's a good point i i think that um i i definitely don't recall watching before then and obviously there were more momentous events in space travel before 1972 but i think i was i was just too young um and i certainly don't remember them and then but then i do remember becoming really interested um in manned space flight uh so i remember the the apollo soyuz link up i met i remember the first space shuttle flight so that's when i really got switched on to the whole idea of of space travel and and how exciting it was and with the kind of space travel astronaut dream um i know you also used to watch star trek yeah so um that was a show that was just repeated endlessly through the 70s and into the 80s. And I do remember uh, in school holidays, they would show episodes of it in the mornings. And then it, it got a, an early evening run on BBC One, I think. Um, and yeah, I think it was just a show that was very unlike any other science fiction that, that was on TV then. I mean, back then it would be Doctor Who and then 
Blake Seven, and and I I was never a fan of those in the way that I was of of Star Trek. I guess I just loved the idea of space exploration. I loved the idea that it seemed to relate to um, kind of what the space program was in the sixties and seventies, which was about exploration and and um, it really captured my imagination. I have to admit that you have turned me into something of a, as upstairs call it, a Trekkie, because I'd never watched it. I think I'd been rather hesitant about it. And I watched the Salt Vampire episode. I think it was in initially intended to be family viewing, but I was kind of blown away by it has that subtlety of kind of wit and slightly more adult humour alongside, you know, very generic action kind of plots which was just fascinating and i did find it to be honest slightly terrifying yeah i you know what i it was never part of my experience of watching star trek that i did find it scary whereas i think that as as a little kid doctor who did tend more into horror at times and um and that was something that i didn't enjoy particularly when i when i was very young Whereas with Star Trek, it was more the sense sense of adventure and that it was more of an an action show. And, you know, the episodes that I enjoyed the most were the ones with real tension and real jeopardy. The, the ones that, that kind of delivered um, kind of on thrills and mystery rather than, than a, a monster of the week type. Yeah. I had that with Doctor Who. They had a World War II version, I believe. And it was the one where the child constantly says, where's my mummy? And I don't think I slept properly for a year after that. It was terrifying. Honestly awful. Okay, I now want to move from kind of childhood to teenage years and early adulthood and talk about what you were watching then. Um, you were an academic student. You went on to study at the University of Birmingham Medical School. What were you like as a teenager and what kind of series mark that era? Yeah, I, I kind of developed more kind of grown-up viewing tastes um, when I went to secondary school and talked to my mates more and more about TV. Um, because I think when when I was younger, it was I remember, like I said, watching Star Trek a little bit and, and shows like Happy Days, and then um, into the teenage years. That was when um, I. I I started watching things that maybe weren't family viewing. And what I mean by that is that they weren't the kinds of shows that my parents would enjoy watching. And that was the, the impetus to, to push for um, a little black and white portable TV, which is how I watched The Young Ones. Because uh, I remember seeing the trailers for that and thinking that's a show I really want to watch, but I know my parents would hate it and not get it, and and that was part of it, you know. As you as you enter your teens, you develop your own tastes and you go your own way, and and back then it was harder to 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 find your own way of watching. Whereas what we were talking about a few minutes ago is that it's so much easier now. You can watch on on a different device, and and that's what teenagers do they stop collective viewing with um with their parents or their older siblings and they want they want to go their own way yeah what drew you to the young ones it was the irreverence and the the, the fact that it, it just appeared to be laugh out loud funny the the um television comedy then was was quite warm and 
quite safe. Often it was it was middle class domestic settings for sitcoms, and that played obviously hugely successfully to to the the large mainstream audience. Um, but it was the age where alternative comedy was breaking through and people were doing different things and it just kind of chimed with with teenage humor and um it, it just became a very talked about show in in my peer group and and one where unanimously we we understood that that it wasn't working for for our parents they just didn't get it for those who don't know as well when I watched The Young Ones, I tried to think of a, a modern day kind of equivalent. And it is, it's not quite accurate. I was thinking it's kind of the version before The Inbetweeners or maybe had the same kind of cultural impact as when I was at school and The Inbetweeners came out and that was all everyone would talk about and you'd go home and you'd watch it and then everyone would come and discuss. And again, you'd kind of, not because there was anything wrong with it, but you'd kind of keep it away from your parents because some of it was, something they maybe wouldn't enjoy yeah i i think in between us is a is a great reference point for for all the same things i think in between us was hilarious and um i can imagine as as a teenager thinking my parents would really not get that at all um but also i think it's obviously disconcerting for um for teenagers when their parents do get it because i i find in between as funny but it um i can imagine lots of parents wouldn't um i want to talk about uh your time kind of in the medical branch of the RAF and you qualified as a pilot and i wondered were you obsessed with the original top gun and have you seen the most recent one yeah i uh i did go to the cinema and see top gun uh, in the eighties. And, um, I think it kind of really glamorized flying in a way that, that appealed to someone who was, um, very young. I I think watching it now, I, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult film to watch without finding some of it a little bit over the top and, uh, and extremely superficial. Um, but the the excitement of flying certainly comes through from that movie in the same way that it does in in Top Gun Maverick. Military aviation is all about kind of pushing to to the limits, and it's what makes it a very exciting and challenging um, profession. And and I was always attracted to something like that. I never had any desire, for example, to be an airline pilot. Um, it was always that it, if if I did fly, it, it had to be that kind of high stress, high G uh, type maneuvers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Which is crazy. What What does that actually feel like for someone doing it? The first thing to say is that you're in control of the aeroplane. So it's not like being thrown around 
um, on a roller coaster because you're actually doing the maneuvering yourself. So you do have the advantage of anticipating things. Obviously, every now and then you kind of get a bump or something that you're not expecting. But generally speaking, you're you're kind of physically prepared for it. Um, I want to talk about your work as a junior doctor because a lot of your work, earlier work, was inspired by your own first-hand experiences, um, both cardiac arrest, which I absolutely adore, and bodies. And I want to talk about how you kind of entered the world of TV after seeing an advert in the British Medical Journal for a consultant on a BBC series. So just tell me about that journey. Yeah, so um, I was still in the Air Force when I started working in the NHS because I I was intent on a career in aviation medicine. And at that point, it was still an opportunity that, that was was open to me in the Air Force. That changed when when there were defence cutbacks. But I, I started my house jobs uh, in the early 90s, and it was a real baptism of fire of, of experiencing what it was really like in the NHS um, as a junior hospital doctor, working very long hours, at times with, with very little supervision, and, and constantly... At, at the limit of your competence in terms of the um, the tasks you were performing. Um, and I didn't think that that was represented at all in medical dramas at the time. In, in fact, um, I, I think a lot of us found that the portrayal of the NHS and the portrayal of, of junior doctors felt kind of out of date. Um, so there was an advert in the British Medical Journal, a, a television production company, were seeking advisors for a new medical drama that they had in development. And it just seemed like an opportunity um, that appealed to me because, you know, I was a fan of TV and the medical dramas that I watched, like I said, didn't feel like they represented the reality. Uh, it felt like an opportunity to go and talk to them and and get that message across. And it ended up turning into a conversation that 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 continued over a couple of weeks with um, phone calls and, and interviews. And, and at the end of it, they, um, they asked me about storylining, that I had a lot of anecdotes and, and a lot of experiences to pass on, which I didn't feel were represented in medical drama. And they, I think at some point in their editorial process, which I obviously wasn't party to because they were having those discussions between themselves, they flipped into the idea of, of of making the medical drama about junior hospital doctors and attempting to represent the experience that I was trying to convey to them. So I, I did a little bit of suggested storylines for them, which they liked, and then they um, they really surprised me by asking if if I'd be prepared to to try writing a script, uh, which I'd never done before. So that that was a, a pretty steep learning curve. So why did you take that opportunity when you saw that advert? If you were kind of going on this medical route, I know you said that there were cutbacks. So was it just the opportunity, you know, had you had a kind of creative flair as, as a youngster or what what happened there? It's a good question because I certainly didn't think it was going to change my career. Um, I at that point was very clear that I wanted to do aviation medicine in the RAF. And then when that opportunity 
uh, was taken away. Um, I started seeking the same opportunity in the Navy and, and eventually uh, went some distance with the Army Air Corps in, in, in the same direction. So it just felt like something that might be a hobby, um, that, like I said, I was a fan of TV and I'd never really been a creative person, but that was because of my education. I went to a very ordinary comprehensive school in the Midlands. There wasn't really an opportunity to to do drama, um, but also it wasn't on the horizon. It, it, like I said, it was an ordinary comp. We were working class kids and the idea of going into any kind of creative profession felt firstly um, out of reach. It, it, it always felt that you needed connections to be able to do that and none of us had those. But also it felt financially precarious that I was fortunate enough to be reasonably strong academically and tended towards science because those those were my interests and um it was about kind of finding a secure profession which is what led me towards medicine and then from that point folding in the idea of specializing in 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 military medicine and aviation medicine so it was just never on the horizon at all so in terms of my expectations with 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 the the opportunity that came my way it 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 was initially as, as i said just to advise and hope that they would make something that that reflected the reality so that um the experiences we were having in the nhs back then would appear in tv drama and then when i was given the opportunity to write it felt like something interesting um and it also felt safe it was like well if it doesn't work out it's not like my life is going to change for the worse because i'm doing something else anyway yeah um when you first wrote a script did you realize that you were good no i i i don't think that was part of my thinking um because it it was quite it was all quite nebulous and subjective you know if you if you're doing medical training or, or or flying training there are certain objectives that you have to reach and um of course there are subjective elements to those but but generally speaking you know what you score in an exam you know what you score in a flying exercise and and it's apparent to you wh- wh- whether you're competent or not um but the subjectivity that occurs in the arts was something that i was obviously familiar with um from from school and and maybe that's why i've veered away from it in school because um in science it it felt like and certainly in maths it, it felt like you were working towards factual answers and it, it the there was an easy way to know whether you were getting it right because if you were doing a physics experiment and your circuit worked then you got it right um, it wasn't like someone would, would look at the circuitry and decide that um, aesthetically it had failed, e- even though the, the current flowed. So um, that that was not never part of my thinking, really. It was purely that I suppose I was auditioning for the production team, for the production company, and it was entirely their decision whether I'd, I'd achieved the goals that were being set or not. And 
their feedback was always very encouraging and very positive, which was great because I was used to a much harsher learning environment in medicine and and flying. You tend to learn through humiliation and near death experiences. So to be doing it in uh, in what felt like a, an encouraging and inspiring environment was great. And that's something that is definitely different in medicine. It seems a lot of the time that credit isn't given where credit's due. Like you say, there is this kind of learning through humiliation, thrown in at the deep end. And you've spoken before about working in media and, and not being able to speak. I think you call it lovey. Yeah, I mean, that was obviously once we got into to making the show, you know, I was very fortunate that um, the scripts continued to develop well. And I had a lot of input from people who knew a lot about program making. And so it, it was incredibly fortunate and, and completely unexpected that um, the BBC commissioned the, the series into production. Um, and being on set was was a real eye-opener. I'd, I'd never worked alongside creative people like that before, and it was obviously very impressive to see how people went about their work. But there was also a way of talking that I was just completely unfamiliar with, and it and, and that was also part of the learning curve of, of, of learning how to speak a kind of language that, um, that, that um, represented being able to give notes on, on an acting performance or to, to be able to convey things that were, were highly subjective and, and do it in a way that, that had some kind of clarity. Now, you're one of the most respected writers in British television. You've had a fabulously diverse career. You've written novels as well as for the screen, directed, produced. You've been behind a number of the most successful shows on British TV, from The Grimleys to Line of Duty to Bodyguard to Bloodlands. Where do your ideas come from? Most of my ideas come from the real world. Um, that when I was writing about medicine, I wanted to represent a particular experience that that felt like it was it was real and it was shared. And so when I started thinking about um, writing a police drama, I was looking for stories in the real world that that felt inspirational and also opened up territory that would be distinctive for the police drama. And eventually that led to looking at police misconduct because I'd, I'd been aware of the fact that there were numerous examples of miscarriages of justice, of police error, uh, police misbehavior and police corruption. And it felt like it would give a police drama a, a, a distinctive texture because a lot of the, the, the cop shows that were successful and um admired by people and and were good shows followed a very straightforward formula which is the the police do all that is required in the episode to catch the bad guys who are criminals and then they lock them up and everybody's happy and it was it's it's the drama of reassurance which is what tony garnett used to call it who uh, was the exec producer on um cardiac arrest my first medical drama and also made some really kind of hard-hitting programs about the criminal justice system, things like um, Law and Order and uh, Between the Lines and and the Cops. Um, 
and those deliberately weren't the drama of reassurance and my my medical dramas haven't been that they've tried to look at issues within the, the medical profession and the delivery of medical care that are written about and reported on in the the news cycle but aren't necessarily represented in dramas and line of duty became a hit after three series at which point it exploded into the general public's consciousness from that as a scriptwriter, do you ever feel the success of the program is tied to the success of the kind of public reaction or do you does it come from your own sense of satisfaction when you watch the show back well going going back to what we were talking about earlier about subjectivity um there are obviously huge amounts of subjectivity when it comes to considering what success is. And what I say to, to other writers who are maybe entering the industry and um, less experienced writers I'm working with or when I, when I do kind of Q&As on screenwriting courses, I, I always say that, that success comes in many different forms. And Sometimes you have to decide for yourself what success looks like. For some people, success is is commercial success. It's it's lots of people watching your shows and um, or lots of people paying to watch um, your movies or go and see your plays or read your books. And for other people, it's much more elusive. It's something about being um, considered to have. Uh, achieved excellence within your art form and and look at ways of of that being recognized whether it's it's through awards or through whether it's through the the positive comments of critics um but i think that subjectivity kind of lies in all those areas and so um the only objective measures really are things that relate to numbers um so I do take very kind of seriously how many people watch a show and how many people stick with it and watch the next episode. And and that kind of goes back to my scientific background, that that's the best value data. Um, if you look at, at, at other measures of success, they are far more subjective. That doesn't mean that, that as, a, as a, a creator, you can't feel fulfilled and rewarded um in other ways but um as my career's gone on i i guess i've just become more kind of sanguine about what lies behind certain subjective opinions and in in the end the only thing that that is a hard and fast number that you can wrap your head around is how many people watch the show how many people stick with the episode how many people tune into the next episode so with something like cardiac arrest obviously you're bringing your medical expertise and, and your first-hand experience when you then write a show about the police force without being a police officer what kind of research do you do you know do you go and spend a day with the police like shadowing a bobby or you know, what how do you get into that how do you make sure that it's reflected i had a little bit of first-hand experience when i was a doctor of of interacting with other emergency services and and had a little bit of experience of interacting with um the police uh but yeah it's a really good point because obviously i i had 
huge depths of experience about medicine when I wrote about it. And I also chose to write about areas of medicine that I was very familiar with. Um, in, in terms of writing about the criminal justice system and about policing, um, I, I did some reading. I did meet some police officers and, and talk to them about it. But one of the things that we learned when we were developing Line of Duty was that corruption and anti-corruption investigations are a very sensitive area. And it, it proved quite difficult to get the, the kind of research done that we wanted to do. And we relied on people talking to us anonymously, people talking to us off the record, um, that changed as the series went on. Once it had been on the air, then police officers knew what kind of show it was and knew that it was trying to be authentic about police procedure. And, and also it was trying to represent the fact that there were many police officers who were doing their best to root out corruption. So things changed from from season two onwards. And then we had lots of really helpful input from police advisors. Now, I want to talk to you about Bloodlands because as a TV journalist, I have to say, very rarely do I see a series continue to get better and better and better. So for listeners um, who need a bit of a quick recap, series one follows Northern Irish detective Tom Brannock, who is played by James Nesbitt. The kidnapping of a man drags up an investigation which went cold years before. That investigation looked into the disappearance of three individuals across the Catholic-Protestant divide during the Troubles at the hands of an assassin known as Goliath. And I want to talk about casting James Nesbitt because he is captivating as Brannock. He's nuanced. He's got a quiet strength. He's erratic at points. There definitely feels like a kind of conversation with anger going on in his brain. And he's definitely determined and incredibly loyal to his daughter. Did you always have Nesbitt in mind for the role? When Chris wrote the script and we met and um, we agreed that it would be great to try and work on it together. Um, so my production company, HTM Television, um, optioned the material and we we started working with Chris who just did a fantastic job of um developing the storylines that would would be season one we inevitably started talking about who would play this um incredibly significant character someone who um has to appear to be the good cop but is hiding terrible secrets someone who in some way represents his homeland that many of the, the the conflicts and struggles that that Tom goes through are are shared with um shared with his people and so um it was inevitable that when you have such a small pool of of um authentic northern irish actors that his was the first name that came up and uh, i i knew um, Jimmy a little bit socially, but we'd never worked together. We got lots of colleagues in common. Uh, so it was very easy for us to have a meeting with him. One of the other executive producers on Bloodlands, Mark Redhead, who works at HTM, had worked a couple of times with Jimmy. He'd produced uh, 
Bloody Sunday that Jimmy starred in, directed by Paul Greengrass, and uh, another drama called The Secret, um, a true crime drama that Jimmy starred in a few years ago. And so Jimmy felt very kind of comfortable working with us, and we were really thrilled that he agreed to take on the role. And you used the word authentic there, and I just wondered how important is it to be telling authentic stories of life after the Troubles? And, and do you ever feel any kind of sense of obligation when you're writing these stories? I think it's really important that we're we're sensitive to uh, the legacy of the Troubles. And uh, I'm not from Northern Ireland, so I rely very much on the advice of people who are much more familiar with it. And we've got a, a fantastic team. Chris Brandon grew up in Northern Ireland. Jimmy's obviously from there. Mark Redhead has spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland and is a real expert on the the historical legacies of of the the last kind of thirty or forty years, um, and uh, also the BBC. You know, we we're a BBC Northern Ireland production, and they're great at helping us make the right decisions. So so that the show is it's it's hard hitting, it's thought provoking, it's 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 a, a post watershed drama that deals with some difficult subjects. But it's just really important to do it in an even-handed way, which is why we're always looking at how um, the the tragedy of the Troubles affected both communities, how um, the wrongdoing in the Troubles affected both communities, and so on. Yeah. Okay, now we move on to something a little bit more lighthearted. It is a quiz. I'm going to play you three theme tunes and you're going to see if you can guess them number one any ideas no it's the avengers is it very good number two That's one, I'll give you a clue, that is always on Talking Pictures TV. Yeah, it sounds familiar, but again, it's it's not one of my go-to shows, so I don't know what that is. That was The Persuaders. Okay. And then there's this one. And if you're a sports fan, I'm hoping you get this one. Yeah, that's much of the day. Yeah, I think that like a bit of sixties TV was a bit <laughs> bit, bit before <laughs> bit my before time. your time. BMT. Yeah. I did ask you to tell me about your favourite theme tune, and I don't think I've ever seen this show, but the theme tune is so strong that it's instantly recognisable. Although I wouldn't be able to tell you where it's from, so I'm going to play it for you, and then you can explain why it's your favourite theme tune. That's a very good theme tune. 
It is, isn't it? Well, it reminds me of watching TV as a kid. Um, it was, uh, I think it started before I was really watching TV, but I certainly remember watching later seasons of it when I was a little kid. And it was, a, you know, an American procedural show um, that just filled the schedules back then. And there were lots of American cop and detective dramas. And that was obviously Hawaii Five O, And I guess there was just something incredibly exuberant about the theme tune. It felt like it was fun and exciting and it was upbeat. And a lot of the other theme tunes were rather like the the ones you played before, which they're kind of, they're, they're not that exuberant or exciting. They become one of the same. Yeah, they don't make you kind of sit up and want to watch. Whereas I think there was something about that that was just really strong. And, you know, the other theme tune that I I think was in that category was Mission Impossible. Mm. Um, and obviously um, Hawaii Five-0 was, was rebooted and um, it still has the same theme tune now, which is like just shows you how iconic it is. Okay, we now move to our quick fire questions. So most of these are an either or, and you just say the first one that comes to mind. Subtitles or no subtitles? No subtitles. Streaming or terrestrial? Streaming. Running commentary or silent watching? Silent watching. What's your guilty pleasure? Golf. (laughs) Snack of choice while watching TV? Crisps. What flavour? Salt and vinegar. Delicious. Right answer. And what's your comfort TV? Old comedies. Last one. Would you ever have a TV dinner? Yes. If so, what would you eat from your lap? It would be anything because I regularly have TV dinners. (laughs) I love that for you. I'm way too much of a mess eater. Anyway, that is... um, all of the questions. Thank you so much for spending an hour with me chatting about your TV habits. I think that was great. It was all really interesting stuff. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to View From My Sofa. If you want to hear more from Radio Times, don't miss our Smart TV podcast in which we tell you what shows to watch this week and one to avoid. And if you want to read more interviews with the stars of the small screen, don't forget to pick up your copy of Radio Times out every Tuesday. That's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>